So good to have you with us, y'all. Welcome to church. Um, my name's Ashley. If we haven't yet met, I am uh, the pastor and priest here at Christ the King. We're thrilled to have you with us. We've been going through the Old Testament prophets for the last number of weeks uh, through the summer, and we will do so again today. This will be actually our last week with the prophets. And before we um, read together and pray together and see what the Lord might say to us, I want to just make a a sort of quick note, uh, particularly for those who are listening far and wide, and maybe for all of you who haven't yet heard um, us say, we're looking for a kid's pastor here at Christ the King. So we're hiring and um, praying and searching far and wide for uh, who God might call and invite to come and and pastor our kiddos and build our ministry team. And so we want to, again, just remind you all to be praying with us, particularly if you call this church home. Uh, We have some of, I know I'm partial and potentially biased, but some incredible kids in this church, and they've always been such an integral and important part of our life together. And so it is our great hope to see uh, who the Lord might provide to give some leadership to us as we're building out a ministry team and building for the future. It's a really exciting time to be a part of this church. I continue to be Uh, just sort of overwhelmed with gratitude at what the Lord has done in the past year that we have been here and building the team that we have through Isaiah and Chris and Ashley and Jake. And um, what a gift to get to work with these guys. And so if you know people uh, who you love and trust and you think that they would be a good fit for us, please let them know about this position and just be praying with us. We're excited to see uh, what's in store for our kids and for all of us, actually. All right, we're going to read together. These are the words of the prophet Isaiah 44. We'll read and then we'll pray. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let them proclaim it. Let them declare and set it forth before me. Who has announced from of old the things to come? Let them tell us what is yet to be. Do not fear or be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? There is no other rock. I know not one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, thank you for your word, indeed, this morning, and for the gift, Jesus, of being gathered uh, to you and to one another, and the chance, Lord, just to be still. And I pray, Lord, that that would be the mercy that you would extend to us, God, that you would allow us just to be still, to be still in our thoughts. Bring us peace, Lord, in our minds and hearts. Help us, Lord, as Jake was saying, God, to settle as if, Lord, we had gathered at your feet to hear what you might say. And as always, Holy Spirit, our prayer is that you would lead us to, point us to Jesus, that we would see you, Lord. We would hear you. Take the freedom, Lord, that's rightly yours in this time. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So for um, the last couple of weeks, if you've been here... Uh, we've been with the prophets and also been working through some, you know, more challenging things like politics and how we read the Bible. And I woke up Monday morning and went to the lectionary to see, you know, which prophet we would draw for this week and whose words we would be sitting with. And um, I got to tell you, I felt like a lot of 
I don't know that relief is the right word, but just some reassurance because uh, there's something about the kind of confidence and certainty that I feel in a text like this. I mean, these are, of course, the words of the prophet. He would have delivered them, but, you know, these are the words of the Lord coming through Isaiah. And for those of us who are Christian, I hope that you can, in fact, hear the words of Jesus himself saying out over, like, all of our thinking and feeling and wrestling and questioning, like today we get to sit with the words of the Lord to say, there is no other God besides me. There is no other rock. I know not one. And there was something about like the conviction in those words that really settled me um, on Monday. And just, I think I want to say kind of to all of you sort of humbly this morning coming in, I feel... um, Like our greatest hope, the thing that we could pray for and hope for is just that every single person I think would feel and be open to receiving some of that settledness and conviction, particularly if you don't have it within yourself. Like maybe a very good and gracious God has gathered us together to put something solid underneath our feet so that we could stand up and what a gift and a grace that really is. For the last few weeks, we've wrestled with, rightly so, the challenging words of the prophets. The prophets like Jesus teaching parables, you know, they didn't come to necessarily comfort and to settle people. That's not the job of a prophet, and it wasn't um, at certain moments of Jesus' own ministry his job either. Uh, It's not parables do. The parables Jesus taught were not, you know, sweet stories or fables um, meant to, like, you know, make us feel better or reassure us of what we already know. Like Jesus says emphatically, that's not what I'm doing There's something about this word that's going to unsettle you, that's going to challenge you, that's going to shake things up. And that's certainly been true of the words of the prophets. And so they've called us to examine our allegiances, which is why we talked about politics. They've called us to challenge or to examine our own assumptions about who God is, which is why we were confronted with the image of a Messiah who rides on a baby donkey, triumphant and victorious. What does that even mean? You know, and similarly, last week, we've been, like I believe, challenged by the prophet to trust the word of God. A reminder that, in fact, so much of the time, we feel like we do not trust. We feel uncertain and unsure. And then there come the words of the prophet, the words of God, in fact, reminding us that as sure as the rain and the snow go out and don't return to the Lord empty, so to his word. And all of that has been an invitation to like grapple with uncertainty and our own lives, minds, and hearts. We talked about last week to wrestle with God. Like the Bible is not easy. The word of God is not easy, oftentimes not straightforward. Um, in the words of Emily Dickinson, picked up later by Eugene Peterson, you know, God never says it straight. He tells it slant. And that's to make you go like this. Because once you're like this, you're just less sure. And maybe there's something about the nature of faith that's just inherently less sure. The invitation to wrestle, to ask questions, to grapple with a God you can't possibly know all the time and understand or get right exactly. And so I think there's something really healthy about that invitation to just accept that uncertainty is going to be a part of this, that deconstruction will inevitably be a part of this. It's why we've spent so much time post-exile, because, yes, we live in a moment in which sort of deconstructing is in vogue, but the facts are that whatever that word has come to mean for us now, that reality of re-examining your faith, of relearning and repenting and coming back to something and opening your mind up, that's the nature of faith. It's always as old as this faith is. 
You know, if you sat with a psalmist, for example, and been like, I don't know if you've heard of Jacques Derrida or if you know anything about deconstruction. It's a postmodern phenomenon. I think the psalmist would have been like, really? I think that's, that's what we've been doing. I just thought that was faith with an infinite God. And so as good and right and true as it is to wrestle with those things, constant deconstruction without reconstruction is not progress by any standard. It's just a constant erosion of something, of the ground beneath your feet, to use the metaphor. If I'm just constantly tearing down, constantly questioning, constantly eroding the ground underneath my feet, then I've got nowhere to stand. And that's what makes the timing of these words to me feel so poignant, so perfect, so brilliant. Because the same God who is going to invite me to stand at the riverbank, just like he did Jacob, and say, wrestle with me, I am the Lord. That same God is going to turn around the next minute and say, I am the Lord. There is no other rock. I know not one. So it's both. And there's something about that that today feels like particularly helpful. To hear the conviction in the voice of God. To hear the steadiness in the voice of God. To be reminded that when I am unsteady, and I will inevitably be, because faith requires me to some degree at times to be unsteady. Growth requires me to feel unsteady. That when I am unsteady, he is not, there is no other rock. He's the solid and sure place beneath our feet. If we don't believe in anything, y'all, we can't be challenged. In other words, I don't believe that the most redemptive and even progressive way forward in a cultural moment in which it is very in vogue, and for a lot of reasons, to be grappling with and our own uh, convictions, our own opinions, uh, a lot of folks are doing that, rightly so, in the church and outside of it. We've been through a lot. This is a time of questioning. That's not bad. But if we want to have a redemptive posture in, a time, in times like these, just as the prophets had to have one in times like theirs, I actually think that the most redemptive way forward is not to believe less or to have fewer convictions, but to have convictions and hold them generously. Do you know what I mean? It's not to not hold anything it's not to believe nothing. If I believe nothing, I can't be challenged. People who never choose anything can't make room for something different. I cannot wrestle with a God I have never welcomed and taken hold of. So if you're going to wrestle, you got to take hold of him. You know what I mean? My boys are seven and five. Um, a lot of wrestling in my house these days. And I was thinking about this and the imagery of it. You know, if I, if I imagine what's happening culturally when it comes to our existential questions about faith or politics or whatever, what, what I, the image that comes to mind is not one of wrestling. It's like being in the rink and taking jabs at one another. That's a different way of fighting altogether. There's space between. I take a jab and then I back up. 
you take a jab and went back up. But that's not what my boys do. Wrestling looks like a wad of flesh with legs and arms extended this way that tumbles around on the floor. It's what you do with brothers and cousins and sisters. It's what you do with family. You wrestle. Somebody's going to have spit on their arm or teeth marks on a shoulder, and they're going to keep going on that. In, you can't tell, indistinguishable from one another until somebody shrieks and screams and cries and runs off. That's wrestling. What an intimate thing to do. What a beautiful image for what faith is like. But it occurs to me, unless you're willing to take hold of somebody you love, unless you're willing to get in there and hold on, you can't wrestle. So I think the first question for us is, what is it that we're doing with our faith? Are we taking jabs, keeping space, or are we wrestling? Because don't confuse the two. They're not the same. I very much want to be a part of a community and a people who wrestle. That's the invitation of our faith. I'm done with jabbing. If we want a redemptive way forward, it is my conviction that we're going to have to be people who believe something, who choose to believe something, who choose to hold on to something, who choose to have convictions generously held. Our faith does not require certainty. It does require conviction. And they're different, I think. Jesus leads us in the way of one and not so much in the other. In the years following the exile, when the words of Isaiah 44 would have been sent, Israel was actively grappling with how to reconstruct, to literally rebuild the infrastructure in Jerusalem. We talked about this, these, the days of Zechariah, when you're going in the whole places in ruins, you have to rebuild you have to, not just the infrastructure, but for Israel, what was happening around that same time was that they had to rebuild an identity, a relationship with God. How are we going to do that when we can't and don't know how to trust your word? So the prophets had been actively deconstructing their assumptions about uh, power and kingship. God had said things that they thought they understood like, you're going to have a king on the throne forever? And then now, here they are in the aftermath of the exile, and it's like they're grappling now with the trustworthiness of God's word. If he said it, what did he mean? How could he say that and that be true and this moment also be true at the same time? That feeling, by the way, how could God's word say this and this be a reality here at the same time? Again, part of faith. That question is going to inevitably confront every believing person. That was Israel's crisis of faith and identity playing out in real time. These words. That's when they came. Over all the uncertainty, over all they didn't know, over all of the deconstruction under their feet, they heard the sure voice of the Lord say, By the way, there is no other God besides me. There is no other rock. I know not one. In other words... If you're going to rebuild, you're going to have to have somewhere to stand. You cannot rebuild in sinking sand that's just constantly hollowing out beneath your feet. You won't. You can't. You have to stand somewhere. You have to be steadied. And that's what I love about who Jesus is. If I'm going to wrestle and I stand any chance in really doing it, I'm going to have to plant my feet. 
if I'm going to engage with my faith, if I'm going to grow in the way that we're meant to grow, if Jesus is going to ask us questions, if he's going to encourage us to think differently and expand our view of him and ourselves and each other, he's going to do all of that and first say, you're going to wrestle with me like that? I don't understand what's happening. Plant your feet. Plant your feet if you intend to wrestle. And I think there's an invitation for the church for me, for us. We have to plant our feet. The future for Israel had to begin with a choice to stand on something solid. And it wasn't that their faith was solid. That wasn't the solid thing. It's not that their feelings were solid. Their feelings were not solid. It's that God was. He invited them to stand with him and on him. They didn't have to be solid. They just needed to know that he was. Rock and stone imagery stretch throughout the whole Bible. They rocks, they're everywhere. I wish we had more time to talk about rocks this morning, but we don't. That'll have to be for another day. Um, there's a reason that they feature so heavily throughout the Bible. Um, rocks are like little bits of time that you can hold in your hand, little bits of story little bits of place. They're deeply, deeply Jewish. If you've ever been to a Jewish cemetery, what do they stack on the tombstones? Rocks. Um, stacking stones. God's people have been stacking stones for a long time and for a lot of different reasons. Rocks are used for raising memorials. Uh, we didn't get to read it today. Uh, it got clipped from the readings, but the Old Testament reading that was assigned in the lectionary is the story of uh, Jacob when he goes uh, and he's by the river, not to wrestle this time, but to sleep, and he chooses a stone for a pillow. Do you remember this story? And he goes to take a nap um, and to sleep for the night, and while he's asleep, he has a vision of God. There's a stairway to heaven, yeah? The stairway to heaven has angels descending and ascending on the stairway, but God himself is at the bottom of the stairs, and he speaks with Jacob there. A really beautiful image. And after uh, the vision, and when Jacob wakes up, he stands the stone that he had been sleeping on. He puts it upright. And then he anoints it with oil. He raises it as a memorial to remind him of the place where he met God, to help him see. Because a rock that lays down like this is like a natural thing. Any old accident could have created that. But a rock that big that stands upright, like a stone hinge, not natural. Not any ordinary accident created this. Something happened here. What is it? Maybe God was here. That was the idea. There are other stories like that, right? Um, many of them. In 1 Samuel 7, uh, similarly, uh, Israel's at war with the Philistines, and then there's, God intervenes, and Samuel instructs God's people to raise an Ebenezer. So if you've ever come across that word, um, in the hymn... Uh, that's what it means. And some, I've noticed, in some revisions of the hymn, we've replaced the word Ebenezer with something that we more easily understand. Um, what is it, Jake? When we amend it, do you remember? Um, something like your sign of grace, or I can't remember. Those kinds of revisions in the hymns, um, they mean something. Because I actually think that the word Ebenezer is something that you should know. That's a word that should be steeped in the imagination of God's people. It's a vivid, vivid image of a stone, Eben in Hebrew, Ezer, God helps, 
Raise an Ebenezer. Sit it upright. Look at it. No, raise a memorial and know that God has been here because you will be unsure. You will forget. You will have times when you do not remember that the grace of God carried you, and you will need to see this really weird rock standing upright to remind you that not any ordinary accident created what you have with God. Your faith is not an accident. Who you are is not an accident, and you didn't make it up. Raise an Ebenezer. That's 1 Samuel 7. This over and over and over again in the Old Testament. When they crossed the river Jordan, they stacked 12 stones in the river. Oh, think about it. You've just crossed the river, and then God says, no, I want you to go get rocks, and I want you to take rocks back into the river, and I want you to stack stones in the river because that is the place I delivered you. I delivered you from there. Remember it. Don't forget it. This imagery carries all the way, of course, to the New Testament, and it gets picked up by Jesus, particularly in Matthew 21. There's this really powerful sort of back and forth where Jesus is, I believe, wrestling with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are not outsiders. The Pharisees are insiders. They've taken hold of God, and Jesus has come to wrestle. And they're going back and forth. And in Matthew 21, he quotes from Psalm 118, a beautiful poetic line tucked away in the psalm. It's one that you know. Jesus says in reference to himself, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Referring to himself. Now, of course, the imagery from the psalm is really vivid and powerful and important. And it matters for, I think, what Isaiah is saying. That idea is not just a a poetic one. It was a real-life situation. That actually happened. Like, if you're going to build a structure, like a temple, for example, and you're going to make it of stone, you're going to have to go and get those stones out of a quarry. So when the workers would go and, like, you know, cut the stones out, they didn't cut them out in these, like, brilliantly polished, smooth, perfectly shaped stones that would get used. They were hewn out, and they were rough and messy and gnarly. Like, you cut a big chunk of rock out. And somebody had to go along, a builder's job, an engineer, had to go and examine these big chunks of rock to choose which one was going to be used as the cornerstone, which one measured up. By the way, some, many of you, no doubt, in this room have been to Jerusalem. The cornerstones of the Temple Mount, they stand today, 2,000 years later, the same stones, so whoever the guy was, and it was a guy, no doubt, who chose the stones for the temple 2,000 years ago, He picked right. They're still there. 15 feet long. Massive. And they have to be perfect because this is the cornerstone. This is the reference point. All other stones are going to take their cues from this one. So you've got to get it right. So the builder would come out and he would examine all of these big chunks of rock. And the poet in the psalm has put himself in the place of the stone that gets rejected. Sad. (laughs) Because that, imagine it, there's a builder going by going, hmm, crack here. No, that one's out. Oh, look at this one. I don't know why the imagery of, like, have you ever checked watermelons? You, like, thump on them? (laughs) My grandpa used to do this all the time, and I've never known what it is exactly that I'm listening for when I thump them. Um, But I thump them anyway. And that's what I imagine. There had to be some test, you know. They're knock on it. They feel it. They're like, yeah, no. Not this one either. 
on and on and on and down the line until you get to the one, you know? And what the psalmist was saying is that I, the stone that the builders have rejected, they looked at me and found me compromised. They looked at me and found me not strong enough, not trustworthy enough. That stone God has made, the cornerstone, God saw differently. God could see what others could not see. God felt it, found it sure, trustworthy, reliable, strong, in a way that others couldn't see it strong. And Jesus takes that image and applies it to himself. I am the stone the builders rejected, and yet God has chosen me as the cornerstone. Here's what I would submit to you. For you, he is the cornerstone. It doesn't matter if you would look at him and find him untrustworthy. It doesn't matter if you would look at him and find him unsure or compromised or not worthy of your trust or your faith. Because you've got questions and you're wrestling, fine. Wrestle, have your questions, but in the absence of certainty that, by the way, you're never going to find, in the absence of certainty, the invitation of Jesus is to say, I know you have rejected me, but God has made me the cornerstone. Build from here. Let me be a sure foundation underneath your feet. Let me set something solid here for you to wrestle with and from. A firm place. A firm foundation. That's who Jesus is. He's the reference point. He's where we start. He's how we build. <laughs> and so, rightly, you might say in response, well... How does a person choose, even in choosing Jesus, requires more certainty than I have? I don't even know how to do that. I couldn't. What does that even mean? What I love about that question is that it is the question of an actual real disciple. Because a disciple does not have to be certain about where you're headed or where you're going or where God's ultimately going to lead you. All a disciple has to be certain about is who they're following. Do you know what I mean? All Jesus is asking of you today is would you choose to follow him? To let him be the one who is your starting point and your reference point from which you build. Can you start with him? Can you choose him? Can he be the one who leads you? And the reason that that matters so much and that I love the honesty of our faith is because there are days, y'all, well, I will tell you, I, he's all I know. There have been whole stretches of my faith that have felt that way. You're all I know. Do you remember John 6? When Jesus, one of my favorite moments, because he's being scandalous and ornery on purpose and talking, inviting whole crowds of very normal, sophisticated people to eat his flesh and drink his blood, which is a funny thing to do when you think about it. Just standing out on the city square, saying, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to drink my blood and eat my flesh knowing that it will thin the crowds, <laughs> and it does. And then he looks over at his friends, Peter, James, and John, and he says, do you also want to go away? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. In other words, all I know to do is follow you. I don't know the rest of it. I don't know where it's leading. I don't know where we're going. I just, I'm going to watch you. 
Because what that does is it makes you more honest about staying close to him. So that's what I would submit. That's what I would say to you. If you're unsure about everything else, watch Jesus. That's the invitation for the disciple. Just watch him. How do you do that? Well, that's why we read our Bibles. That's why we pray. That's why we come to church and come to communion. I do those things because I am looking for Jesus, not because I already know. Do you see? I don't pray from a place of certainty. I don't read my Bible from a place of certainty. I don't come to this communion table or even wear this collar because of everything I know. In fact, most days, I wear the collar, come to the table, pray and read my Bible because of all that I don't know, and the only thing I do know is Him. And I am watching and looking so I can stay close to who He is and be where He is. That's what He's asked me to do. Over all of our uncertainty, God would say, I am who I am. There is no other God besides me. There is no other rock. I know not one. Conviction. I have convictions. And with those convictions grows a kind of steadiness about the things I'm wrestling with and the things that I'm just not wrestling with. I don't know that I would say the things I'm certain about or the things I know. But there are a few things. The longer I'm with Jesus, the steadier I get, the more certain and solid the ground underneath my feet becomes. And that's the invitation for us. So I would put it to you. Practically, let him steady you, the ground underneath your feet. Watch for him, stay close to him in the ways that you know how. He's not asking you to do the things you don't know. He's just asking you to do the things you do know. Yeah? Help us, Holy Spirit. Lord, will you lead us? Will you help us, God, to do exactly as you've asked, to just stand with you, to follow you, Lord? I pray, Lord, even now that those of us, Lord, in need of being steadied and feeling something solid underneath our feet, that you would, Lord, do that in the way that only you can. Help us hear you, Jesus. Help us to hear your invitation, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.